Welcome to You, Me and the Nostalgic Football Podcast from Football Whispers, where each week we take a journey back in time to reminisce about a hero of the 90s. This week we're talking about the man Liverpool fans call God, Robbie Fowler, and who better to help me remember the Toxic Terror than Chris Pajak from Red Men TV. Chris, how are you? I'm good, thank you, mate. I'm looking forward to talking about Robbie Fowler, to be honest. Uh, it was nice to have to think about how good he was again. It's been a long time since I've given any consideration to his first spell at Liverpool. Absolutely, me too. I, as I said to you before we recorded, thrilled to be able to talk about him and just watch some of his clips and what have you, you know, what a special player he was. As alluded to in the intro, a player that has a special place in the heart of Liverpool, hearts of Liverpool fans, you know, right up until the present day. When we say the name Robbie Fowler, what does that name mean to you? What's your overriding kind of feeling and emotion about the man? Bloody love. Um, I absolutely love him. You know, I think, you know, he's an absolute hero of mine growing up. When he was breaking on, uh, breaking into that Liverpool side, obviously we were having the struggles of the Graham Souness era at the time. And, you know, we'd not long won an FA Cup, but we weren't challenging for the league title anymore. And Liverpool have had, you know, it had Ian Rush in the side. And this young scouse lad became the beating heart of Liverpool Football Club. And, and not only the side itself, but also, you know, he gave us all something to, to look forward to and, and, and think that we can achieve. And I think that's what it does when a when a hometown player comes through. You know, imagine yourself in his shoes. So he's a year older than me, you know, and he starts breaking through into this side and you're like, wow, you know, um, absolutely insane that somebody like that can do that. And, you know, he had this sort of socialist viewpoint as well. I think, you know, everyone remembers him wearing the, the Calvin Klein logoed T-shirt and, and, you know, Liverpool's a very socialist city. So you knew he was a part of that and he felt like he was one of you, except he was really, really, really talented at football and, and I wasn't. I was going to come on to the kind of socialist aspect and you know the importance of really being uh someone who identified with where he was from further into this but you know you mentioned there the the calvin klein t-shirt and support the dockers uh quite obviously coming through in an area of the city that you can tell me far more about toxic than i can tell you about and so on and all these sort of things that there were there are various other things throughout his career that it made it apparent quite how much it meant him to be from Liverpool and how proud he was to be. He was at Istanbul in 2005, for, of course. Every club loves, every club supporters love fans that, uh, sorry, love players that, you know, can identify with their club. But to Liverpool fans, how important was that, is that, and, and with Fowler in particular, do you think? I think it's part of who he was and, and Liverpool coming off the back of 1980s Liverpool and, and Thatcher destroyed Liverpool um, and her government destroyed Liverpool. So to see him come from one of those areas that was just one of the worst hit areas in the country, you know, that everyone remembers the Toxteth riots and something like that. And to see somebody who was sort of forged in those fires come out and, and be stronger and be a Premier League star, not just a Premier League star, he became a world star. Um, it, it gave everybody hope, I think, at the time um, that you can get out of that and you can achieve something. And, you know, he had he was blessed with literally God-given talent, I think, you know. Um, it helped to raise everybody up and, and give them something to look forward to. And, you know, we had the best striker in the league there for three years easily um, and probably one of the most talented footballers I've ever watched. Um, so to just be able to see that and to know that he's from where you're from and he's been through the same hardships as you've been through, Again, it was, he literally just brought everybody together. Talk to me about the fact that he was obviously an Everton fan as a child, not the only one, but how does that, 
how aware are fans of that to begin with? And does that have any, you know, significance when it comes to actually playing for Liverpool, uh, you know, in a professional sense? I'm not sure I was very aware until maybe he'd been in the side a couple of years. I can't remember the timescales now, thinking back to the mid-90s and, and you know, being a lad and, and without the internet as well. Um, these things are just completely different, aren't they? We don't have this 24-hour news cycle now. So he was just Liverpool's number nine to me and he was a young kid from Liverpool. And, and that's what I remember at the time. Obviously, I... I I, 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 the timescale's funny, but it never mattered because he probably, by the time I found out, he probably banged in about 60 goals and he clearly loved the football club and he clearly, you know, ingratiated himself into the folklore at Anfield. So for me, it, it, I don't remember it being an issue as such. And, you know, we've seen other players, Jamie Carragher, uh, since come through, one club man who, who was an Evertonian and, and speaks candidly about that I don't I don't think it matters so much as long as once you're in Liverpool you play for Liverpool and you give your all and Robbie certainly did that as did Jamie Carragher absolutely right as you say the goal the volume the sheer volume of goals that he scored would have helped uh, make sure people knew where his loyalties lay set the scene then for us of, of Liverpool as a football club in the early 90s they'd last won the FA Cup a couple of years prior by the time that Fowler made his debut and they hadn't won the league since 1990. What was this team like and who were the kind of stars and, you know, what was the general lie of the land? Yeah, I think, you know, John Barnes was coming to the end of his career, maybe. You know, he wasn't that tricky winger that he once was. He was he was getting moved into more of a centre midfielder role under Roy Evans. But when Fowler made his breakthrough, um, it was under Sunes, wasn't it? And, you know, Ian Rush again was coming to the end of his second spell at Liverpool Football Club. Um, Rob Jones, we had a great lad back in Rob Jones. Um, but his career was cut short. I think, all in all, the side that won the league in 1990 and the one that when, when he really broke through in the mid nineties, um, there was a there was huge change, and you know Kenny Dalglish obviously left Liverpool, and uh, we weren't in the best shape. A lot of our great players were getting on a bit, and it was a huge rebuilding job um, for Graham Souness, and, and one that he didn't undertake very well, if I'm honest. And I think he freely admit that the players that he bought just weren't good enough to to lace the boots of the the, the lads who'd won the league. So uh, we were all looking for something. Uh, we were all looking for you know. A number nine that could bang in goals. And Liverpool have always had great number nines. And when Robbie broke through, it was immediately, uh, it was, well, it was with immediate impact. Um, I, I think, and, and then from there, you know, we had Steve McManaman was starting to become the player that he'd become, uh, and the two of them were dominating games. But defensively, while we had those two, we never really got it together. Unfortunately, players like Neil Ruddock and John Scales and later, uh, laterly Phil Bab, um, decent Premier League players, but not of a standard that we need. Certainly, like you know, even later again, I think Julian Dix comes in. It was just this yard dog of a defender, and um, we never really, we never really put the players around them uh, to be able to assault, put a real assault on the league. Um, not for a want of trying, but you know we had Jamie Redknapp as well, who, who went on and had a good career, but was injury ridden. Um, but yeah, it was a good, talented side. Obviously, then uh, later tarnished with the Spice Boys image, unfortunately. Yes, which we'll go on to discuss. You said there needed someone to kind of, you know, pin your hopes on a, a proper number nine to come through, and, and Robbie Fowler was certainly that. There was much kind of clamour, I think it's fair to say, at the time he sort of done very well as a youngster and what have you, but in that pre-internet age, as you alluded to earlier, how aware 
were Liverpool fans of how special this player was going to be or was it sort of were you taken by surprise and obviously he makes such an incredible start doesn't he scoring on his debut and then hitting five a, a fortnight after so was there any, anything that could have prepared you for quite what a sensation he was going to be at that stage? No, because we were also living in the age where that didn't happen very often. Um, and I, I don't remember personally, you know, hearing much buzz around about a young Robbie Fowler. Again, you know, what I learned was from my dad. Um, I'm from the Liverpool Echo, the newspaper that, you know, you'd pick up and you'd read the, the back five pages um, each and every night. And, and that was... That was it, and I don't. I probably had no interest in the reserve team back then. But young players coming through, age seventeen, eighteen, it was a little bit few and far between back then. Um, obviously now you see they're much more, they're much better prepared for Premier League football at that age. And you know, Cesc Fabregas maybe was one of the first instances where it was accepted that a seventeen-year-old could come in and and perform at the highest level. Liverpool didn't really have those types of players. You know, you'd play in the reserves for a few years, you cut your stripes there, and then you get into the Premier in into the into the first team. So to see Robbie Fowler come in and make such an impact straight away really took me by surprise as a young lad. Um but we were all on board with it, man. It was a great ride. And, you know, he though that those first few years, it was like he could do anything on the football field. You know, whether it's smash one in from 20 yards straight as an arrow like Alan Shearer would, he can do that. He can bend it in. He just had a wand of a left foot and he was playing on instinct, it always felt like. He wasn't blessed with fantastic pace even before the ACL injury, but he just knew where the back of the goal was and, and he was a poacher. He just... Nobody knew how to defend him. And part of it was, I don't think he knew what he was going to do. As I say, it was just instinct. And he'd find the back of the net and you'd be like, wow. I mean, if there was a player that really epitomised getting your bums off your seat, Robbie Fowler was that player for me in the 90s. He makes such an incredible start. Obviously, scores said against against Fulham in the League Cup. Hits five a fortnight later. What was the kind of reaction this time from your memory? Obviously, as you allude to, quite young at the time, but... How, how do you recall his his sort of early weeks and months in the, in the Liverpool first team? Just hitting the ground running, I think. You know, he's a stupid amount of goals in his first uh, first few games, didn't he? I think, you know, it was 13 goals in 12 in twelve games. Um, and and you were like, blow my neck. Is this... Is this, is this what this kid's going to do? Because we're going to walk the league here. Um, if they, you know... One in two, up until Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo changed, it was a great centre-forward. And this lad, young lad, had come into the side and was scoring nearly a goal a game. Um, and it was just about whether we could shore up defensively around him. But I think the City was really sort of primed for us to go on and, and challenge for the title with someone like that up front. And certainly learning off the likes of Ian Rush as well, that made a big thing for us. I was going to ask you about that, because obviously you said earlier, you know, coming to the end of Ian Rush's second spell, and we all know what an icon, what a legend he is for Liverpool. How much of a bearing do you think that had to being able to learn off someone like Ian Rush for Robbie Fowler as a teenager still? I think it would have been massive for him. I think, you know, Rushy um, is one of the nicest fellows in football. I've had the pleasure of, of, of interviewing and speaking to him. And you can tell he's just one of those people and every 
ex-Liverpool player that I've spoken to always speaks of Rush in really high regards and Robbie's no different to that and you know Robbie's a very humble person who doesn't really like to be the centre of attention who found himself in the spotlight and he would quite often you know talk about his teammates and how it was them making space for him and how he's just the one on the end of it and, and Rushy will have given him so many pointers I'm sure over those first few years and, and even after that to be honest with you I know Rush was still giving him pointers and still is to this day um, while the legends now obviously you know Robbie was a Liverpool legend um, which is what we call ex-pros who go out and speak on tours and stuff and Rush was always there with him and I know that they enjoy their company but Rush was again in that sort of same mould as Robbie and that you know not blessed with blistering pace like Premier League stars of today but very much about movement and, and being in the right place at the right time and I'm, I'm sure that Rush will have been able to give Robbie pointers there and talk to him about not only where and how to find space but also the opposition I think you, you get one attempt at coming through in the Premier League and you, you're an unknown quantity. Rush will have been able to play against these players and tell them what they like, what they don't like, what they're good at. And I'm sure they'll have discussed the weaknesses of the defenders that they'll be coming up against. Yeah, there can't be many better players to learn off as a striker and certainly as a Liverpool centre forward as well. He finished his first season with 18 goals, but Liverpool were eighth in the Premiership as it was then. Roy Evans taking over from Graham Souness at the end of the January. What was... Fowler's kind of standing at, at Liverpool and in the Premiership at that kind of time by the end, by the end of his first season as a first-team regular. I think coming at the end of this first season, we were wait, we couldn't wait to get started on season two. Um, I think we we'd had a taste of of God and we wanted to see more. And you know, again, Roy Evans was brought in, and it was very much Liverpool going back to the boot room with Roy Evans. He was there um, throughout Shankly and Paisley and Fagan and Kenny Dalglish, and Liverpool were trying to reset and and get back to those winning ways, and and that's why they brought Roy Evans in and. Roy was one of those players, uh, one of those managers. Apologies, who who would put their arm around a, a player, and I felt like Robbie, Robbie would have reacted well to that. Um, not as standoffish as maybe Graham Souness or a, a Gerard Houllier, who, who Robbie would later play for, but very much, uh, you know, you're one of my guys, and you know, I, I fortunate enough to to see how Jamie Redknapp um, interacts with Roy Evans at a golf day a few years ago, and and Robbie wasn't there, but I find it an interesting story because. Uh, we were at this Liverpool Legends golf day and Roy just turns up maybe a little bit too old to be playing golf with the lads now. And Jamie Redknapp, who was Liverpool captain around those years, literally called out Roy Evans and said, Gaffer, we we are you here for the day? And Roy goes, yeah, I'm here. And, and he goes, will you, will you come round with me? I'd love to have a chat with you. And and that's how Roy was felt like and, and, and thought of by his players. Uh, he was very much one of the guys who'd, who'd look after him, a fatherly figure. And Robbie probably needed that. You know, he's a little bit of a loose cannon in his in his early years and, you know, needed a, probably a father figure to, to, to get the best out of him. And I think certainly you can see what Robbie Fowler does for Roy Evans. There's no argument that this was the best iteration of Robbie Fowler uh, prior to his injuries was, was under Roy Evans. What was Roy Evans' kind of impact on the team? Because after finishing eighth, at the end of that first season, there was the feeling, I think I'm right in saying, was he kind of steadied the ship and improved things to, I think they finished third or fourth the following season. So what sort of impact did he have on the team and stylistically, do you think? Well, I remember, I don't know whether it was this early on, but he definitely, he moved to a, a sort of 3-5-2 formation, Roy. 
Um, and we started to play with the wing backs, and Roy was able to get the best out of Steve McManaman. And then, and then those next couple of years, it really was, you know, the Steve McManaman and Robbie Fowler show. They were best mates off the pitch. Uh, they were unbelievable together on the pitch. You know, McManaman consistently setting up Robbie Fowler for goals, um, but also McManaman able to take games by the scruff of the neck, like, like the 1995 Coca-Cola Cup final, um, which Liverpool fans still think of that as the Steve McManaman final. Um, and, and you know, he was unbelievable. The two of them were the stars of the show. And, you know, we, we latterly brought in the likes of Paul Ince to sort of give us a bit of steel and uh, that championship winning mentality that he had from those Manchester United sides. It didn't quite work out. And obviously, um, again, we were, I think we were the best attacking side in the league then. Uh, under Roy Evans, but unfortunately the the problems prevailed at the back with with the likes of Phil Barb and uh, John Scales players that I mentioned before. Um, but we were an we were an attacking side and we were a great footballing side. You know, one that you'd love to watch. Everyone remembers that Newcastle four three, don't they, Tom? I mean, you, you I mean, what a game of football that was. Well, I was going to come on to that in the next section, but you know, we'll just jump ahead and talk about that very quickly because it was obviously Fowler and Collymore at that stage got a brace apiece in that game if I remember rightly how how did that partnership work out because Collymore comes in at eight and a half million you know big signing at the time Fowler the kind of the homegrown local kid you know could very easily have not worked do you see what I mean the sort of dynamics of that relationship but they did seem to click quite well didn't they and that match was the probably the epitome of that right oh yeah I mean and, and then they had John Barnes behind them as well, pulling the strings, as everybody knows, and Kevin Keegan hanging his head in shame. Um, but, you know, when Collymore came in, she was at Nottingham Forest, who weren't quite the, the force that they were uh, a few years earlier, but he, he was unbelievable. It was one of the most skillful dribblers I think Collymore had ever seen. I used to enjoy watching him play for Nottingham Forest. And we signed him for eight and a half million quid. And at the time, I think that was a British record transfer fee. Um, that eight and a half million quid and... and 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 then I think it's broken not long after by Alan Shearer, probably to Newcastle for 15. But, you know, when Collymore comes in, you're like, well, this is a big, strong, you know, physical, skillful striker. And then you got the poacher and Robbie Fowler. And I think I was certainly absolutely made up because I loved Collymore. Um, and the two of them worked really well together and surprised a lot of Liverpool fans. And, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't old enough really to have a, an opinion that would have been taken seriously. If I was if I was saying the two of them would play together back then, it was a guess more than anything else. Um, and, that, and that might not have changed any in the last 20 years, to be fair, but I've seen a lot more football nowadays. And I think that, you know, when Collymore came in, like the two of them just seem to hit it off straight away. And again, you, you may well have seen the best of Robbie Fowler with, with Stan Collymore and, you know, Collymore and him. They just, the dynamic was interesting, as you say, you know, you got a British record transfer fee, the hometown hero. And yet it was about Liverpool getting better and it was about the team. Um, and that, that, that I think is probably what stood them to apart and why they were able to sort of improve each other's games. Indeed. Well, we'll talk about Liverpool getting better very shortly. We're just going to take a very quick break and then we'll be back to talk about the mid-90s and that part of Fowler's Liverpool career. Well, welcome back to You, Me and. This week we're talking about Robbie Fowler and I'm joined by Chris Pajak of Redmen TV to reminisce about the player that Liverpool fans to this day still call God. Fowler, when we left it, is very much the breakout star of 
Liverpool in the early 90s and by the 94-95 season he's never present. He scored 31 times in all competitions as Liverpool win the League Cup final. Also nets the fastest hat-trick in Premiership history uh, for four minutes and 33 seconds against Arsenal, which is a record, of course, if you know your Premier League history was eventually eclipsed by Sadio Mane, ironically, and obviously now a Liverpool player. He's PFA Young Player of the Year in 95 and 96, which is something that only Ryan Giggs, Wayne Rooney and Deli Alley have done since. Is this Fowler at the peak of his powers, Chris? He's banging in goals left, right and centre. He's pretty much untouchable, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he is. And, uh, you know, it's funny because we're in lockdown at the moment, obviously, when we're recording this. And I've seen a lot of things on Twitter where fans of clubs, and, you know, mostly my Twitter is Liverpool fans, have got, like, who, who, who does this kit remind you of? Well, everyone from the 90s is Robbie Fowler for me, you know, and and that says more about what he meant to me, I think, than anything else. You know, I see that typeface that we used to have the number 23 in. That typeface means Robbie Fowler. I don't even need the kit. I just need to see a typeface. I'm thinking about Robbie Fowler. You know, you got that green and white square kit, which was just beautiful. It's just pure Robbie Fowler with the blonde hair. Um, you've got the, the, the Adidas ones with the three stripes on the shoulder and that's Robbie Fowler and, and the cricket collar one. And they're all Robbie Fowler for me because he was the star. Um, and, you know, different uh, different style hair occasionally, you know, full blonde, little blonde tips. And he scored with all of them. It didn't make any difference to him. And he was loving life and we were loving, we were loving watching him, enjoying watching him because... You know, right then and there, you know, 30 goals a year for, I think it was three seasons, give or take. Um, he was unstoppable. And, and yeah, I just, there was nothing he couldn't do on a football field. There really was nothing he could do. And, and at that time, prior to the ACL injury, I don't know how anyone could stop him scoring goals. It just, it didn't matter how or where on the football field he was. He was going to score and there was nothing you could do about it. I don't know if it's uh, the kind of nostalgic element or the fact that fashions go round in cycles, but a lot of those Liverpool kits in the 90s, blimey, they were things of beauty, weren't they? And a lot of the ones you mentioned there, just from your description, the image popped up in my head immediately of what they were. You talk about, you know, teams struggling to stop him, defenders struggling to stop him. As you said earlier, it wasn't, you know electric kind of pace uh, the finishing was the main aspect of his game what sort of player was Robbie Fowler and did he develop over these years or did he very much kind of stay the same sort of player throughout his pomp do you think no I, th- I think he did I think one of the things that Robbie doesn't get enough credit for is he was a great team player as well and, and I think everybody focuses and rightly to be fair everybody focuses on the goals that he scored but I mean he could hit a pass he had vision you know, and he had this innate ability to get the ball to, to somebody somehow. And, you know, whether that be the outside of his left boot, flicking it round the corner for somebody running onto it or whatever, he was there. And I tell you what, he could head the ball as well. You know, for a little guy, he's not a big guy and very slight, you know, he could head the ball. I mean, and he had strength. You think about one of his best ever goals was um, against when he chipped Peter Schmeichel. He scored two against Manchester United in one game. And I think he's wearing the green and white kit at the time with the blonde there. And he shoulder barges Gary Neville off the ball before he goes out, goes in and dinks Peter Schmeichel. So he had a little bit of everything. I think when he was maybe 17, he probably wouldn't have been able to shoulder barge Gary Neville off the ball. 
but a couple of years later and he and he is able to and you know his movement again he, he was always able to find space i don't think that ever changed throughout his entire career um but he certainly got better um as he as he grew into the liverpool side and the liverpool side started to mold around robbie fowler and, and we got the best out of him and he got the best out of us now we talked previously about his relationship with paul Coll- uh, Paul Collymore, who's he? With Stan Collymore as a strike pairing, and you mentioned rightly his his understanding with Steve McManaman and the volume of assists that McManaman laid on for him. How important were those two as a pairing on the field, and also for Liverpool fans to identify with? You know, a couple of a couple of local lads done good. Very very important. I think I remember working in. Um, a restaurant in Liverpool at the time, and I was a chef, and my mate used to work in the pub opposite. And Robbie Fowler was in the pub and I got a text message and I was just wrapping up work and he and we went over to the pub and he was there and he was surrounded by Liverpool fans. And, you know, I just remember my mate um, just turning around and going, I've got one of his empties. And I'm like, you've got one of his empties. And he was drinking Beck's, right? So, uh, I mean, you know, each of their own and that, but Beck's is a terrible beer. So uh, Robbie Robbie went down a peg or two in my estimation that day. Um, not that he'll be asked, um, but no, I think like that was the type of superstar that he was to us. You know, I mean, we mate literally had an empty bottle of beer that he drank out of, and he probably still has it now, my mate. Um, and and so that was how much he meant to us. And him and Steve McManaman on the pitch, off the pitch, they were they were Liverpool Football Club at those times. They were the young, um, talented, tricky. Uh, goal scoring assisting partnership that was going to take Liverpool to the title now it never quite worked out like that we've had a few of those types of partnerships since but um, I tell you what it's not for me as a football fan I think a lot of Liverpool fans are the same we just enjoy watching our team. We enjoy watching attack and football and, and to see two lads at the peak of their powers banging in goals and, and playing and, and dominating games the way that they did. That was a great feeling as a Liverpool fan. And it was the hope that got us through then. You know, we never went on to win the league, but you can't take those seasons away. You can't take those goals away from them two lads because I loved every second of watching them two play football together. Well, as you rightly say, they scored a hell of a lot of goals and were playing superbly and a lot, a lot of good memories from that time. And... Changing kind of tack slightly, Fowler won his first England cap against Bulgaria in March 96 at a time when, you know, he couldn't stop scoring. He was part of England's uh, Euro 96 squad. There were a lot of other forwards around that time, Shearer, Sheringham, Ferdinand, Cole, Collymore, Letizia. Should he have had more of a look-in, do you think, given his relatively meagre England career, relatively disappointing England career, or... What what did you make of his kind of England's involvement um, through the 90s? Injury, obviously, which we'll come to later, didn't help him. But for a player of his talent, it seems it seems somewhat underwhelming that he got fewer than 30 caps. Yeah, I, I, I do. I agree with that. And I, I don't really know why. Now, we weren't bothered. You know, Scousers are quite vocal in that the Scouse not English. Um, a lot of the time and we don't care for you know I don't know any Liverpool fans really local to me that really give a, a crap about England and, and what they're doing and stuff like that now um, so for us it was more of a it was a it was another slight on the city it was another why on earth is he not playing you know that was why we were annoyed with, you know coming off the back of 80s and, and everything that we had spoken about it a little bit earlier and the austerity that was going through Liverpool and you know Thatcher looking to try and literally um, blot us off the map and then for for, Eng- for England which is very much London or down south 
is England, isn't it? You know, not to not to consider Robbie as as one of its main men was a bit strange for us. Um, so we felt sorry for him in that regard, but I don't think we really give uh, really cared that he wasn't playing. But when you think of the players, I mean, Shearer was the man. He was the best striker in the country, not just from his Blackburn days. But also, like, you know, I even remember him at Southampton, mate, and he was unbelievable then. He gets the move to Blackburn and, and you know, kicks on in, in a Kenny Dalglish side with, with, it was the SOS, wasn't it? It was Sheeran's, uh, SAS Sheeran Sutton, and they, they had, um, was it Stuart Ripley and, and all those types of players, and Jason Wilcox on the left, and that was a hell of a side, Colin Henry at the back. Um, and then, you, you, you know, so he was the man, Alan Shearer, um, Teddy Sheringham was some player, wasn't he? And he was a clever player. Les Ferdinand, you know, QPR, and, and then Newcastle was banging in goals. Ash, uh, Andy, Andrew Cole, as we call him now, I suppose, you know, for Newcastle was scoring 30 goals a season. Yeah, this site Martin and Collymore and, and, and one club man, Letizia. So a, a wealth of riches. And I still I put Fowler ahead of everyone apart from Shearer on that list. Um, But the England manager never. Where would he... Hypothetically, where would he kind of, or how would he compare to a, a forward now in the Premier League? Is there someone who has his kind of skill set? Do you think playing these days, or play, or playing recently, and, and how would he get on in the you know football in in twenty twenty? He wasn't playing that long ago in the scheme of things. Retired in two thousand and eleven. It's a difficult question to answer because you've got evidence there of him playing in the mid noughties where I think the Premier League's very not not too dissimilar to what it is today. I think tactically we've shifted on a little bit. But when Robbie was at his best, the Premier League wasn't the same. Or, you know, the Premiership. You know, when he was at his best pre injury, I think he'd have slot in anywhere. I'm not sure he'd have been a centre forward. Um because uh, you know stylistically, and this sounds crazy to say it Maybe more David Silva than anything else. Better finisher, but you know, stylistically similar body shape. You know, loves that left foot. Can pull off the passes that a David Silva would have done. You know, maybe nowadays the centre forward role is a bit more pace, a bit more power. You don't really seem to get these sort of uh, quick over three yards type centre forwards anymore. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure where he'd play now. Uh, you know, again, a great finisher, but. Probably not a presser, like, you know, maybe a Roberto Firmino is. Um, so so I don't know whether he'd play centre-forward. That would be really interesting to ask him that question, to be honest with you. Um, because it's so different, isn't it, nowadays? Where, where do you think he would have slot in? I don't see as any strikers out there that are the same as him. No, nor do I. And I think, as you say, you mentioned the pressing there that Firmino does. It's almost, you almost have to have one or the other, don't you? The kind of pressing and the bringing others into play. I'm thinking someone like Emil Heskey, you know, got slaughtered away from Liverpool for, you know, his lack of goals, certainly for England and what have you. But you ask anyone who played alongside him, all the other things he did. I don't think Fowler necessarily had those qualities, but as you say, he was a much better footballer than people probably gave him credit for. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting one. I think he would certainly be quality enough to play these days, right? I just think, yeah, it might be a slightly more withdrawn role than leading the line, as it were, because of the other things that are expected of a of a centre forward these days. Yeah, I think that that was that was also quite one of probably one of the big issues with with the, the second part of his career. You know, after his injury, you know, Arsene Wenger had come in, and was starting to change the way the Premier League or the Premiership, whatever whatever it was called back then, um, was. You know, you you started to have these big powerful lads in Patrick Vieira and Emmanuel Petit in the centre, and you know, um, Robbie 
Robbie was a striker from almost a bygone era, not at his best post-injury, getting into probably one of the most physically demanding leagues in the world, and yet was still able to keep a quite a healthy goal return up while not being his best. So I think he absolutely would have been able to play now. Um, he'd have been a product of it, of this time. You know, had he been growing up this time, he'd have been much more physically ready for it, I'm sure. But you'd only remember Robbie and the training that he had and the Spice Boys and the going out drinking. And then you put him in this and you think, well, what's the same? How can they possibly fit? But if Robbie was growing up now, he'd have come through with sports science and he'd maybe be a slightly different player, maybe a better player. Um, but it'd be difficult. It's difficult to take one and put them into the into this era, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. It certainly is, and that's why I put you on the spot by asking you. Um, finally, then, just for this section, he scored four against Middlesbrough in December 96, and the significance of that was it meant that he reached 100 goals for Liverpool give or take three years after his first and in doing so reached the century mark again quicker than Ian Rush what were the expectations of him at this point did people think this is a kid that's going to go on and eclipse everything that, that Rushy did for Liverpool or yeah we were thinking at, the, at this point he must probably only be about 20-21 years old um, maybe 22 I can't, I can't remember exactly but I think at that point actually strikers were done by 30 so, yeah, you're probably thinking he's got another eight years in him. He's going to go on and become Liverpool's greatest goal scorer ever and he's going to fire us to three or four titles is probably what I was thinking at that point. Little did I know that that wasn't going to happen. Um, but the expectations were there. Um, Liverpool fans believed in him. He believed in himself. And, you know, some some, career, some careers are ended by injury. Now, Robbie's wasn't. But the chances of those records absolutely were ended by injury. Well, we're just going to take a very short break there and then we're going to be back to discuss the late 90s and the Spice Boys era, which uh, is a phrase that's been thrown around a few times already. So don't go anywhere. Well, welcome back to You, Me And. I'm joined today by Chris Pajak from Red Men TV to discuss Liverpool legend and, well, icon really, Robbie Fowler. We've got to the point now where it's the late 90s, a bona fide star of this Liverpool team, along with the likes of Jamie Redknapp, Stan Collymore, Steve McManaman. And it's along with those names that he kind of earns this Spice Boys tag, or Spice Boy tag, um, partially due to the kind of misplaced reporting at the time that he was dating Emma Bunton of the Spice Girls. The insinuation being that they're a group of well-paid young men that are kind of underachieving. How... Was this received in Liverpool? I dare say, given the relationship between the city and the press at the best of times, this wasn't, you know, this was taken as a slight against, you know, the, the players and, and Fowler as one of their own in particular. Is, is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think, you know, the, the suits for the 96 FA Cup final don't help. You know, the fact that these lads all turn up in these beige suits um, and then go on to lose that game against Manchester United, obviously that 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 fed the, the flames, I suppose. Um, I think it was harsh on them. I think, you know, um, they had a few big drinkers in that squad and I think, you know, they'll all freely admit that, but no worse than any, than any other team um, at that time. Again, pre, pre-Venger, I suppose. Um, I think a lot of teams were exactly the same, you know. Um, but that they also worked hard. 
You know, the the likes of those, you know, the lads that you mentioned there, Jamie, Collymore, James, McManaman, Fowler, uh, they did work hard and they wanted to win and they tried their best. So it did taint them. Um, and I think people still think of that side, you know, nearly 30 years, well, nearly 25 years later, still people still think of that side as the Spice Boys and those base shoots and, and stuff. And that's the power of the media, unfortunately. Um, you know, they've all had to live with that. And I, I don't think that's been very fair. Despite all that, Liverpool were top of the Premiership by Christmas of '96. Did it feel like that was it? The tight, the wait was going to be over at sort of what would be seven years by the end of the season. <laughs> or obviously, we know what history what history had in store for them. But uh, what was the feeling around the team at that time? And Fowler still sort of banging in goals, of course. Yeah, I think I, I, you know, I certainly expected Liverpool to to go over in the league at that point. Seven years was. I don't think anyone believed it would be seven years even, you know. We were so dominating during the 70s and the 80s that um, seven years would... If you'd have said to me in 1990, it's going to be seven years, I'd have laughed in your face. Um, never never realising it would turn out to be 30. Um, but, you know, Liverpool, unfortunately for all the players that we had and all the talent that we had on the pitch, off the pitch we were losing ground to Manchester United left, right and centre. You know, the commercialisation of football was growing more and more each day. The Premier League had ushered into it in, in a new era of globalisation of and, and capitalist globalisation, probably the worst type. Um, and Liverpool had fallen behind. Um, the Moores family uh, probably couldn't take Liverpool as far as they wanted to. Manchester United were floating on the stock exchange and pulling commercial partners out of their arse, left, right and centre, while Liverpool were just uh, relying on the talent on the field. And, Unfortunately, you know, we weren't quite there. So I keep mentioning it, but the, defensively we weren't good enough. Um, and we, we let another chance sort of slip by, unfortunately. But again, it wasn't for a want to try and it wasn't because these lads were bottlers or anything like that. But I imagine that, you know, at that side performed now, they would be levelled as bottlers big time by Twitter. Uh, and it, it wasn't really the case. And, you know, they might be thankful that Twitter wasn't around back then. Um because they had all the talent and, and just weren't able to achieve, unfortunately. Does that, obviously, Fowler won a lot of trophies, at, or a reasonable number of trophies at Liverpool, but the lack of league title, does that is that any sort of blot on his Liverpool record or is the fact that, the, you know, no one in that era obviously won a title, renders it kind of moot? No, not, not for me and, and not for Liverpool fans, I don't think. I think you recognise how difficult it is to win the league, first and foremost, um, especially after as long without it as we've been. But also, you know, Robbie Fowler was great. He was one of the one of my all time favourite players. He's my third favourite player, uh, you know, because I've got Jamie Carragher as my number one, uh, because uh, I've got Stephen Gerrard as number two, and and Robbie Fowler as a very close number three. Um, all local lads. Jamie was a, a you know a centre back who worked tirelessly, and I think that's why I prefer him to any of the others. Um, but also Robbie had that about him. You know, a bit more flamboyant and, you know, didn't have the, the length of Liverpool career as Stephen and Jamie, but certainly was, if not, you know, well more talented probably than Jamie Carragher. Uh, well more exciting to watch than, than probably the other two as well. Um, but didn't do it for, over the course of time. I think, you know, the trophies that he did win, you know, he wins a, um, a, cap of, what was it, a Coca-Cola Cup in 95. Um, he wins a, a treble in 2001, um, scoring a, Belter goal against Birmingham on the volley. Um, 
you know, and then he comes back. You know, he's part of that Champions League run of 2007 as well. Misses, obviously, Istanbul. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, unbelievable player. And, and I don't think any Liverpool fan forget, you know, thinks any less of him for not being able to tie up the league title because he did his part. <laughs> certainly did. 97-98 um, season. This I wonder if this is kind of a turning point in his career as a whole. Is the one that's the marred by the, the ACL injury. The first big injury and a, a, a serious layoff at you know that time in the 90s it's not the you know it's not as easy to come back from as it is now and forces him into missing the the 98 world cup as well is this is that fair is that the turning point in his first spell at Liverpool and perhaps his career because you know he never kind of hits the 30 plus after this in terms of goals and it's perhaps the beginning of the end as much as he still scores if that's doesn't sound too harsh. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's a slow decline, unfortunately, after that injury. And it's drawn out, and I'm damn sure it would have killed him because he'd have known that he wasn't the player that he was prior to that injury. I think, if I remember correctly, he's done every ligament, you know, in that in that ACL. It's not just one of them or anything like that. He's done all of them. Um, and, you know, he loses a yard of pace. His finishing's still there. But equally, you've got to think, you know, you're right in saying that players, you know, didn't come back from it as well. Uh, back then, and that's because they weren't in as good a shape as they are now. Um, there's a lot more stress, and there's you know a lot more sports science goes into it where they can make sure that that muscle's back, the surgeons are better, and everything else. So very tough for him to come back, and and not only that, and, and this may just be me talking. I'm not I'm not talking for all Liverpool fans here, but we had Michael Owen when he came back. Had he not got injured, does Michael get into the '98 World Cup? Does Mike Michael Owen become the hottest young property in world football? I don't know. Um, maybe he would have forced his way into the size, but maybe Robbie wouldn't have relinquished that spot. Well, that's what exactly what I was going to ask you. Does the emergence of Michael Owen in that time kind of accelerate Fowler's eventual kind of reduction in his role? I mean, it's not for a couple of years still until Julier takes over on his own and kind of pushes him out, but does it, you know, is Owen's emergence a bit of a factor in ultimately the, the gradual decline? I think so, Tom. I think for me, you know, from what I remember from back then, Robbie, although fashioned a decent partnership with Michael Owen. Obviously, Emil fashioned a great partnership and had it from the unders, the England under-17s and 18s and whatever there was back then. Um, and they just seemed to know where each other were and they had a really great understanding. So when you think of Michael Owen in those first few years, again, before his serious injury, it was, you know, running in behind. And how can you get someone to play that ball to him? Um, Fowler didn't really shoot from, from memory. Um, to You know, Fowler wanted to be the furthest player forwards. And Michael Owen needed space to run into to use his legs, open those legs up and, and get one-on-one -on -one with the goalkeeper. So the two sort of didn't really, in my head, work together very well. So we brought in a lad in Emil Heskey who could do that, who could be, you know, you know, the, the, the ball be played into him and you knock it on for him, let Owen run in behind. Um, and that's probably, it was because of Michael's particular skill set that the team moved to that style of football. And unfortunately... They moved away from Robbie. Had Robbie still been at his absolute best, it might have been the other way around. We might have been finding a way for Michael to feed it into Robbie. But because of Michael's blister and pace, we needed someone who could play him in. And, and that, unfortunately, at the timing of Robbie Fowler's injury, the, the emergence of Michael Owen, for me, was part of why Fowler ever became the player, the main man at Liverpool again. Now, I suspect I know the answer to this one. Who is the more popular forward out of those two, given you know similarities in terms of, sort of playing on the shoulder and poachers that have come through local lads. So I suspect I know the answer to that one, but second to that is, 
who was actually the better player in your view, having seen them both kind of up close uh, for a prolonged period? Oh, man. Um, well, I mean, let's be honest, we both throw the answer to, to the first question in, and, the, and that is the lad who never played for Manchester United. So the answer to that is Robbie Fowler. Also, it was blindingly obvious that he loved his football club and that he loved playing for Liverpool. We always felt of Michael as an England player. He wasn't a Liverpool player. If you, does that make sense? And, and, and so a lot, to a lot of fan bases, that won't make sense. Um, but as I mentioned earlier on in, in the show, Liverpool is what we care about. We don't give two hoots about England and how they do in international tournaments. Our bread and butter and our pudding is Liverpool Football Club and that's all we want to do well. So to see Michael become a star for England was... Uh, a bit of, bit of a kick in the teeth don't get me wrong we loved him and he was sensational and there was a time when he genuinely was the best player in the world but again his career was marred by injury he's done it 21 you know the best the better player oh man that's a hard question I enjoyed watching Robbie Fowler more because I had a connection to Robbie that I never felt I had with Michael Owen I thought he was a more gifted naturally gifted player but Michael was when he I don't think Robbie Fowler was ever the best player in the world I think I think there's an argument that Michael Owen actually was, but I definitely preferred Robbie Fowler watching him. But yeah, maybe Michael did eclipse him. The final part of this segment, then the controversies of the '90s. There were a few, and this is obviously we're trying to be broadly positive because we both we both rate Robbie Fowler very highly, and you obviously quite rightly love the guy for his uh, part in the pool, but find for the sniffing the line celebration now, having read his autobiography he does mention and go into quite a bit of detail about how you know his his disdain for drugs and says that drugs are nothing but evil having seen uh, two cousins die of, of drug abuse um, you know so Everton fan taunts were really quite you know really hit him quite hard and then at the same hearing he's charged for homophobic taunts towards Chelsea's ground so all told, it costs him more than uh, more than ninety grand and six matches. The question I'm going to put to you though is: Does this kind of almost enhance his reputation and add to his character in a way? I'm not saying what he did was right, but do you know do you know what I mean? The, the kind of a bit of a scally, one of the lads, and you know, kind of these days when we see such bland kind of footballers in terms of personality, most of them, not all, but most, it, to have someone who had a bit of character in him and had a, you know, a bit of devilment maybe in him, did that kind of add to Robbie Fowler's appeal um, when he was at the, the height of his fame? I'm not I'm not afraid to say that it did. Part of the reason that we loved him was because he was a young scouse lad who worked hard and had talent and got into the side. And throughout, it was evident that he was still all of those things. You know, he was anti-establishment almost in, in the way that he'd been getting fined. You know, the grass-eating celebration, think of it what you will. I mean, he was stiff in the line, um, 100%. Um, but the drug stuff, we've all been there, mate, when you've done something and you don't realise what you've done. I've been there. I've been there with the homophobic Chelsea stuff, mate. Um, you know, um, we've all done things that we regret. Um, but he, he, know, he knew that he was wrong after the fact and he's apologised for it, I believe. So... Um, very very difficult um, to be and there's no media training for the 90s you know and the, the reason they're all bland and the boring and they never say anything nowadays is because 
the media trained, they're told what to say, what they can't say. Robbie was just being Robbie, uh, and he made mistakes, and we've all made mistakes over the years. Very, very true. Right, well, that brings us to the end of part three, then, and we'll be taking a short break, and then we're back in part four to discuss the end of his first spell, his return, and his Liverpool legacy. Stay with us with you, me, and... Welcome back to You, Me and today we're discussing great Liverpool forwards, Robbie Fowler and I'm joined by Chris Pajak of Red Men TV to discuss someone who's evidently very popular uh, among Liverpool fans to this day. We're coming to the end of Robbie Fowler's first spell at Liverpool now, scores 17 times in the 2000-2001 campaign, which is obviously very memorable as Liverpool completed a unique cup treble winning the FA Cup League Cup. And UEFA Cup, he's man of the match in the League Cup final, scores off the bench in the UEFA Cup final. And he's captain in a lot of games throughout that season in the absence of Jamie Redknapp and I think in one way or another was involved in all the trophy lifts. But things are changing at Liverpool by this point, aren't they? Gerald Houllier is now manager in his own right. Michael Owen, as we know, has come through. Emil Heskey's been signed and they've got a great partnership what you know? What was the kind of What were the kind of ramifications for Robbie Fowler at this point as as Liverpool hurtled into the the new millennium? Back then, there wasn't quite as much rotation as there is nowadays, and Liverpool were playing at two up top. So, although we had a ridiculous number of games in that two thousand two thousand and one season. Um, he wasn't getting the game time that he probably deserved, Robbie. And that was because of the partnership of, of Emil and, and Michael. Their partnership worked really, really well. And it was tough for Robbie because there wasn't the rotation. He was coming in, he was doing well, and then he would be out the team again. Um, they never seemed to see eye to eye, Robbie and, and Gerard Houllier. Um, so it was difficult, a difficult period for him. But every time he got on the pitch, he'd do well. And we all wanted them on the pitch. Um and but the problem is that you know it was either four four two or it was five three two or three five two, um. So long gone are the days when, um. You know, or yet to be seen were the days where you'd play three up top. Now I'm not sure how that front three would work. Um, I'm not sure it would would work with with Owen with Heskey and, and Fowler, but unfortunately there was three going into two and and he was the spare wheel. His Liverpool career at this point, he scores a hat trick against Leicester, his first in the Premiership for three years dropped for the next game and it seemed like a number of events had kind of led up to this point. He was left out of the Charity Shield squad, uh, having had a training ground altercation with Phil Thompson and his relationship, as you mentioned, with Julio suffered. Why do you think those two didn't get on and was there a sort of sad inevitability about the way things were headed at this point, do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure why they didn't get on. It's been a long time since I've read Fowler's autobiography. Um, I'm sure it was well documented in there so I can't really remember I mean obviously the Phil Thompson stuff was was massive um I always got the impression growing up that Julier wanted to create his own team and Fowler was a, a legacy of the team prior to him you know Julier had, a, Julier had a style of playing that maybe Robbie didn't fit into and maybe Julier was beholden to Robbie for longer than he wanted to because actually the supporters loved him I think he wanted Robbie to fail so that he could get rid of Robbie does that make sense? And uh, uh, because he wanted to put his own stamp on the side, but yet the supporters loved and and they Julio knew how important the supporters are, like they are to every club, not just Liverpool. That he couldn't just dump Robbie Fowler. Something had to happen first before he could get rid of Robbie Fowler or move him on. Um, 
And Robbie just loved the club and just wanted to play for the club. Um, so was almost a model professional when he when he hit the pitch. So I don't know. I, I think you know difficult one for me to try and explain, but certainly I think that Julio would have got rid of him a lot sooner. Um, had the fans not loved Robbie as much as they did. I was going to say, from a fan's perspective as well, how hard was it watching someone who, you know, grown up with and had been so good for so long become sidelined and, and, you know, knowing that the writing was on the wall? That must have been taken quite badly by Liverpool fans, I suspect. Yeah, fortunately, we did have Michael at the time. He was, you know, unbelievable. You know, the, the football fan in me, I would have been 18, 19 at this time. Now, for me, back then... Again, you know, no internet, not not the tactical shows that you can have now. The television coverage wasn't quite as good. I wasn't as informed the football fan as maybe a 19-year-old now would be. It's probably the best way of describing it. I'm thinking, well, Robbie Fowler scores 30 goals a year. Michael Owen's been our top scorer for two years. Why aren't we playing the two of them together? Why are we playing Emil Esky who only gets eight a year? You know, that's the that's the type of football fan I probably was at the time. So it was probably a little bit simplistic, uh, 18, 19-year-old me. Um, but, you know, the good of the team, Heskey, Heskey was unbelievable with Michael. And I think now you can appreciate that he was the right partner for him and Julio was probably right. And it was a difficult decision. I mean, I went to university when Robbie left and I was heartbroken. Absolutely heartbroken. Guess which city I went to university in, Tom? Manchester? No, Leeds, where he played. Um, so I remember getting off the train station. I think it was done around Christmas time and coming back off Christmas. And as you come out the train station, Leeds shop was there and they had Fowler, number 11. Not because he was number 11, because he paid 11 million quid for him. And it was like the first thing I saw when I got into Leeds. And I nearly just got back on the train and went home. Uh, I can't remember if it's the train or the coach station, to be honest, but, yeah, the, the point stands. Um, and I was heartbroken. And, you know, he'd come to Leeds and and he was still gifted, man. He was still a player. He could still score goals. And I think he proved that. Uh, he probably proved Ule wrong a little bit because he still went on to have a great goal of game record after that. I was actually going to brush over Leeds and Man City, but not knowing your, uh, your, your association with the city of Leeds, did you see much of him at Leeds? He got... 15 and 31 or something like that, which is obviously one in two is the kind of the gold standard really for normal strikers. Um, how much did you see of him? Had he changed much then as the player? Obviously, no, he had the injuries and this was the beginning, I think, really of the fitness, you know, slide that he went down. But what was he like as a player at that point? I, I still thought he was good. You still tell he had it, you know what I mean? Oh, he still got it. That would be that would be the, the, the shout that, you you know, you, you know, the fellas would say. But I used to go to Allen Road to watch them play. Uh, while I was there, I think I went two or three times and, and got to see Robbie play for Leeds and it was a good, exciting side, Leeds, at the time as well. You know, they were just coming up on, on making an assault on the Champions League. I think they got to semi-finals in maybe 2003 or something, didn't they? So, um, yeah, it was a good side and they had good players, exciting young players as well. Uh, lots of English talent and, and Robbie was, was one of the one of the better players for me. Um, it definitely moulded his game, changed his game, but again, was also playing for a side that wanted him. And they were, they, you know, were channeled to him, um, you know, whereas at Liverpool, it was very much about Michael towards the end. And I think he felt the love from Leeds fans. And I think he felt the love from the, the manager as well. I think it would have been David O'Leary that signed him, maybe. Oh, yeah. Who signed him, it would have been, wouldn't it? Yeah. So that's interesting to know. They certainly never felt the love anywhere like he did at Anfield. And in January 2006, he returned to Liverpool on a contract until 
the end of that season. A different player, as we said, almost 31 at this stage, history of knee, uh, the ligament injuries uh, and, and fitness issues and what have you. That must have been a, a hell of a day, though, for Liverpool fans to have him coming home. What was what was that like? What were your memories of that? You know, It was the prodigal son returning, wasn't it? You know, finally we, we get to see him back in a red shirt. It's a player that we'd all still admired, we all still loved, we all still cherished his goals. Um and we wanted him back. And, you know, at this point, you know, Michael, had, uh, I think, had gone at this point and, you know, we were starting to see a new Liverpool side under, under Rafa Benitez. But I think he was more accepting of his role at Liverpool Football Club the second time. And I think he also missed us. He missed the city. He very much a, a home bird, um, Robbie, and, and, you know, really loved the city and the people um, and wanted to come back. And, and and I've heard him say this, and he said this to me, is that, you know, he didn't realise how good he had it at Liverpool until he went away. Um, and, you know, he wanted to be back. And, and that was, you you could tell that. And as a football fan, he was accepting of his position, yet he still had the talent to make a difference. I remember I was working in Subway at the time and we were about to play Bolton away. And he'd come in about two hours before the game. And I'm like, what's going on, Robbie? And he's like, I'm not playing today. So we come in and bought like 10 Subway footlongs and stuff. And I was like, I ran into the back, got my shirt. Because I was going straight to the pub after my shift to watch the game. And he signed my shirt. But I was devastated for him. But he wasn't bothered. He was like, you know, he knew he knew what he was there to do. And um, yeah, he, he, he was willing to, to be a part of this football club again at a reduced role. And he still had some good goals still had some good games and still adored by the cop of course what, what was the reception like then for his first Anfield appearance of that of that second spell it must have been pretty special oh it was it was loud it was special I mean we were absolutely made up and this is a this is a time when you know Stephen Gerrard's probably the best midfielder in the world at this point Jamie Carragher's in the side and getting another scouser Robbie Fowler back in the squad you know, just just off the back of winning the Champions League, we felt like it was he was a great squad player at this point, and it was very much about the squad with Rafa, and you knew where he'd get his games, you knew where he'd get his goals, um. So to have another scouser in there, we were made up, mate, and 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 he was a, I believe he was great for the, some of the younger lads as well because you could see the 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 aptitude that he that he trains with and how he put himself about on the field, and he he ran himself into the ground that second spell for Liverpool. He worked harder than he'd ever worked before because he wanted to be there, testament to the man. Well, it's coming to the end of his time at Liverpool, really, and after this, it you know he bounces around a lot of clubs, plays abroad and what have you. But I think you and certainly I, as someone who adored watching him, would like to remember him mostly as a Liverpool player. So where where does Robbie Fowler sit in the kind of pantheon of of Liverpool greats in your mind, Chris? For me, um, you know, I've been blessed to see a lot of great Liverpool forwards. I mean, I don't remember, you know, peak Ian Rush. Uh, as well as some people who are a bit older than me, I'm th- I'm thirty seven, um. But certainly, from the Premier League eras, there's Robbie Fowler, there's Michael Owen, there's Fernando Torres, Luis Suarez, and maybe you like some Mo Salah now. Him and Suarez would be two favourites out of those players. Suarez would just do things on a football field that I didn't know were possible, and that's exactly what Robbie Fowler did as well. Just playing on instincts, bamboozling defenders, and all while being, you know, a, the local heartbeat of the side. And then finally, your favourite moment from Fowler's uh, Liverpool career? I think it's the one where he smashes it past Michael and sits him down. Ball down the wing, 
runs onto it away from defenders, which is very on Robbie Fowler, like certainly his second spell, and just smashes it straight as an arrow past the best goalkeeper in the world at his near post. And Schmeichel goes down like he's been shot. He ends up lying on his backside, on his back, like looking up, and the ball must have travelled past him like a fastball in baseball. I mean, the power that he generated off that left boot was something special. Closely followed by probably not as as good a finish, but certainly I think it was against, I think it was the UEFA Cup, probably 96-ish, 97 maybe. Uh, SK Bran he gets the ball on the edge of the area and he's and he's facing his own goal and he flicks the ball over the defender's head with the outside of his left boot spins round him and then volleys it in past the keeper the keeper probably should have done a little bit better but the downright balls on the lad to try that in the UEFA Cup was just from that I mean they're just you could look at highlights on YouTube and, and, and you'll see some of his unbelievable goals but that Manchester United double where he shrugs off Gary Neville and where he does that to Peter Schmeichel it doesn't get much better than that it's Manchester United it's Robbie Fowler and that's the best of him well thank you Chris for joining us today on the latest episode of You Me and discussing the fantastic career of Robbie Fowler you can find the podcast on Acast Spotify and pretty much anywhere else that you get your podcasts and we will be back next week to discuss another legend of 90s football Chris thanks for your time really appreciate it absolute pleasure Tom thanks very much take care mate thank you